I want to welcome everyone to my latest Many Screens Big Picture podcast for Comscore. I'm Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst, and I felt compelled to record this intro because I was so honored on this episode to have joining me in conversation the great Gary Rydstrom, amazing sound engineer and film director. He's been nominated for 20 Academy Awards. He's won seven for sound in movies. There's just no one like this. I mean, Gary Rydstrom is on the Mount Rushmore of sound. And with films to his credit, like West Side Story, Ad Astra, Finding Nemo, Minority Report, Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park, Terminator 2, and many, many others. It was just a thrill for me as someone who's really vested in sound and the way that sound is created and engineered, particularly in movies. And also joining in this conversation, Gianluca Sergi, who is an absolute amazing source of historical information about the movie industry and movie theaters. These two gentlemen wrote a book called The Endless End of Cinema. And Gianluca, being a film scholar and the director of the Institute for Screen Industries Research at the University of Nottingham, really is a leading industry expert and a scholar with over 25 years of experience. We talk about jazz, we talk about vinyl albums, we talk about stereo systems, we talk about the history of movies and how that plays into today's movie industry. And so I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with just two of the absolute best, two gentlemen that I was so honored to have on my many screens, Big Picture Podcast, Gianluca Sergi and Gary Rydstrom. Enjoy. I'm talking to Gary Rydstrom. I mean, Gary, you're on the Mount Rushmore of sound, I, I say. Oh, is there a Mount Rushmore? Okay, yeah. Thomas Edison, I guess. And do. Hey, there better be, and you better be on it. I appreciate that. It's so true. And countless Oscar nominations. And you may have more since I looked you up, but seven Oscar wins. And it's just a reflection of the incredible work you've done over the years. So it's really an honor to talk to you. Thank you. I, I do have seven Oscars and my goal is to win three more and open a bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Don't tell anybody, but I think it would cost a lot, but I think you know, people might enjoy it. I think that's pretty cool. And Gianluca, you're a scholar. You're at the uh, University of Nottingham, if I'm correct. Yeah. And you're 25 years in the business and you've written a book together. This book resonates with me and I want you both to talk about when you first discussed creating the book or what was the impetus to get you both thinking like, we should work on a book talking about the power and resilience of cinema was it due to the pandemic? Was this something you were thinking about beforehand? How? Did, what was the genesis of the book, The Endless End of Cinema? Well, I don't know exactly if I remember correctly, but I think it was one dinner that we had one evening. I was talking about what I was going to do next in my life. And John Luca, who's written books, he went, we should write a book together. And this was long before the pandemic. And John Luca always has a lot that he wants to say about the film business. Even then, there was a pessimism about film. And the more we thought about it, that pessimism kind of stretches back through the history of film. So we came up with an idea to kind of think about, in some ways, give hope for now and for the future by looking backwards, because each of our stories, you know, crisis ends with something positive. John Luke is a real historian. I had to look up all these books and do my own research. But we thought that together we could kind of blend my kind of on the ground practical experience with John Luca's academic experience and kind of look backwards for the sake of kind of 
giving ourselves some hope about where we are because we didn't want to give up. Does that sum it up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really good synopsis of how that came to be. And I think one thing that it's important to say about the book is that when people say history, they think about something that is dead and buried and it has very little relevance. How can it be relevant to people today to study or learn about the 1910s you know, or the 1920s? But the truth is, and here I have to refer to Mark Twain, in the Gilded Age, the opening of the book, he basically says, you know, history never repeats itself, but there are fragments of the history that then ends up creating the present, you know, the, the light that is the present. And I think that's the best way to understand and interpret the book. There are fragments from the past that very much helps reflect what's happening right now. And so in many ways, it becomes a kaleidoscope, to use the word that Twain used, a kaleidoscope of what the film industry is right now by looking at some of those fragments from the past. So it's not really looking at something that's not relevant anymore, but quite the reverse. I think it's one of the few industries that's relatively, in terms of the presentation, light on a big screen and people sitting in a theater, has been the same since its inception, in a sense. And, and there's so much history there that you can go back and look at and learn from and apply to today. There are of course, many endeavors that have that kind of history or the length of time, but not exactly in this way, because I think movies have an emotional component. Obviously, we all love movies, and there's the communal part of it being together, the social part of it, and the mythology and the history and how everyone just, I don't know, there's something the way human nature is that we love going to the movies. And I think that it was really myopic that people thought that because of the pandemic, it would be the end of the movie theater. In your mind, you're like, we know that's not going to happen by looking at the history. Right. Yeah. Is that kind of the perspective that you both have? Gary? I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, to me right now, the two crises that are happening now are the pandemic and streaming, which we've both been through equivalent crises before, so the Spanish flu and, and television. And we made it not only through both those crises, but actually film got better. The experience got better. The business got better. The art form got better. And I think to me, what happens in this story is that I mean, film is an art form. I mean, it sounds kind of highfalutin. You know, people in the film business never like to think of it as art because it sounds, but it's, it's an art form, you know? And art, art forms don't die. There was nothing before cinema that made cuts and projected on a big screen and told stories in that way, which was completely new. Now we've invented it. It's not going away because it's just like painting and music and everything else. It's an art form. It just happens to be a recent one. That's a great point. I mean, then why, I mean, I already kind of know the answer to this is, but then why isn't the pay telephone still around? In other words, there's a, an easier, more accessible, convenient way to have telephony, right? But the pay telephone went away. And there's obviously more convenient ways to watch movies or they're more easily accessible. I'm trying to figure out both of your perspectives, why movie theaters haven't gone or the movie theater experience hasn't gone the way of the pay telephone, for example. Well, there's something about, it's really, we say this in the book, it's really a bit banal, but true to say that human beings like stories. That's true, but you can access stories in all manners of forms through books and other means. But there is something about the large screen, the big sound, the sitting in the dark with strangers who themselves are doors to other stories because you don't know who's sitting next to you. And in many ways, there are multiple doors to other stories. That kind of grand storytelling method and form and impact that it has on you 
is still unique. You can't replicate that. I mean, you know, you can certainly nowadays technologies improve dramatically in the home and thank goodness for that. And it's wonderful. But still, when you go and see a movie projected properly with very good sound, with good seating, with lots of other people, it just doesn't compare. And the success of premium formats all over the world, IMAX, Dolby Cinema, whichever you, you mentioned, is another example of that. People really love to be hit by the story and get lost in the story in many ways. And Gary, do you think having, obviously, I want to talk about sound, how important is the in-theater sound? And and obviously much different today than in the very early days of cinema and certainly from Nickelodeons or in the before the advent of talkies and sound. Do you think that was a huge turning point and maybe contributed to people embracing even more going to the movie theater? The fact that you could get the bigger picture, but in the past, the sound was probably better than most people's three-inch TV speaker on their TV. But let's talk about sound and how absolutely essential great sound is for a movie and certainly theaters are a big part of that there are certain movies that ushered in the need for much better sound i'd like to hear your obviously your expert <laughs> thoughts on the importance of sound in cinema i think there's no one better to ask this question well you know i obviously i'm, I'm completely biased i think in the book we talk about one of the crises is the coming of sound which is true i mean the cliche is that hollywood didn't see it coming like oh, we're making these silent movies but you know and the truth is that sound was a big part of movie going in the silent era, but it was just in the exhibition side. Sound was full orchestras, to piano players, to, to voice troops, all sorts of things. So there was sound in the theaters that were playing the movies. It was a big part of the experience. What happened when sound came in, it was this technical, oh my God, what are we going to do technically? It was actually as big or bigger an artistic crisis because people making films in Hollywood going, I know what I'm doing. I'm just shooting these shots and I cut them together and I make a funny movie or a dramatic movie and I'm done. But no, you got this massive tool that just drops in your lap, right? Because the big change that happened in 1927 is that sound was the purview of the exhibitors, and then it got brought to the being the purview of the filmmakers, which is great in the long run, because then you end up with Alfred Hitchcock and David Lean and Francis Truffaut and all these great filmmakers that use the tool of sound. So the crisis actually enhanced movies, the art form became deeper. For a while, it felt like we're ruining it by adding this crass element, you know, and there's still people to this day who thought that silent cinema was more pure. But now you can still have silence in sound cinema. It added an aspect of storytelling that put it under the, the, the director, the filmmaker that made for movie making that was richer. And then in my era, you know, the sound, the technology of sound became bigger, Apocalypse Now and Star Wars and that kind of stuff. So the experience kind of washes over you and becomes, you know, because we film competes with TV and other things. I mean, the bigness of that, the kind of the grandness, the word that John Lucas used, it's grand. It's grand storytelling. That envelopment, that bigness, I think, is part of what keeps cinema cinema is that experience. And so sound continues to be a, a, an important aspect of inspiring people and, and making people want to go to the cinema because it's something you can't get at home. Even with good systems, you, know, you can't get that experience at home. So sound's been a key part of the growth of cinema from the very beginning to now. You brought up a great point, Gary, that even in the quieter, like A Quiet Place is a great example of a movie that it's so much about the sound design and, and sound is a character, the lack thereof. And that was a really interesting meta experience in the theater. I remember I'm like about to choose some popcorn. I'm like, oh God, I'm going to like, bother everybody in this theater <laughs> <laughs> and then another movie that i think used a lot of quiet moments was the beginning of there will be blood it's just sound 
there's no dialogue, I think, for 20 minutes. No dialogue, just the sound of essentially breaking his leg and hurting himself in the shaft. Yeah. To me, great filmmakers make use of every aspect of film. And, and what I always loved about film is that it includes everything, you know, writing, art, sound, acting, performance, everything. And so Paul Thomas Anderson makes great use of sound. So great filmmakers do that still to this day. It's another tool in the toolkit, right? Yeah. It's something that is so additive and so essential. We can't imagine being without. And I know when you go to the movie theater, I mean, I have a really good sound system at home. It's point of pride for me. But in a well-equipped theater, I mean, you're just like blown away by the immersiveness of the sound. And Babylon, really, I think, uh, for all the mixed reviews it's getting, it has one of the greatest scenes ever <laughs> capturing the challenges of the switch over to talking pictures and sound in movies there's just a scene that's incredibly funny but then tragic i don't want to spoil anything i've never seen a better an example of what that was like what you alluded to earlier gary that going to sound create a whole new set of challenges move the sound to the filmmakers still in the hands of exhibitors today but in a different way they're not creating the soundtrack or the audio or the sound, right. but now it's in the filmmaker's hands to use that as another character in the story. Exactly. Yeah. I'll bring up just one quick thing. Sound is part of the bigness of cinema. And, you know, when television came in, other things kind of was part of the expand the size of the screen, expand the size of the sound field. And I think when we talked about the box office and international aspect of box office these days, there's an energy that's coming from around the world. And I would say that that energy, that kind of inspiration comes from generations of people who grew up on going to big cinema, because I think that's inspired people to make their own. It's always the way it is. You know, it kind of reinforces itself by inspiring the next generations to try to take that same art form and do their own thing with it. And I, it's fun to see the internationalization of film right now. That's a big story. That's a huge story. And, and Gianluca, I want to ask you about, I remember back in the, uh, I guess it was the 80s or thereabouts, or maybe 90s when the multiplex, not the multiplexes we know today that have huge screens and great sound systems, but when they started splitting these auditoriums in half, creating these postage size stamp screens, not great sound, not great sight lines, that alone could have killed the business because rather than differentiating the movie theater experience from the home experience, it made them more similar, like they made the theater smaller. And now we're back to, thank goodness, where we have big screens. But could you talk about the history of how the very nature of how the presentation or just the size or the architecture in a movie theater came into play and how it can both create and expand the experience or it can destroy it? if in the wrong hands are done improperly. Yeah, we need probably four hours podcast to talk about all of that, but certainly- We got it, let's go. <laughs> but certainly, I mean, I wanted to highlight a couple of interesting points in relation to what you were saying. One little riff on sound, if you allow me, even though we talked about that, even before synchronized sound came to the cinema, there were directors like Abel Gantz, the famous French director, director Napoleon, that were experimenting with surround sound. I mean, he used to put a record player at the back of the auditorium to play the sound of the army or the French army descending from the Alps into Italy. Wow. So that the audience will feel the army approaching from the back before he actually appeared on screen. So this idea of full immersion is certainly not new. And in terms of what's not new, it's really interesting. I know that, Paul, that you're an expert in this, that 
you know, looking at different ways in which exhibitors these days try to, you know, survive by showing things which are not movies. So, you know, it could be anything from live concerts to live opera and everything else. The interesting thing is that when the first television cameras were developed, and we're talking now about the 20s, the idea was that they were going to be used to broadcast live television in cinemas. In other words, what we now think is revolutionary was already done in the 1920s. That was the original idea of live television cameras. So everything changes and everything stays the same. But to go back to your point about the 80s, actually, this is really interesting. The period between 1980 and 2000, which is roughly 20 years, the average ticket sales during those 20 years is considerably lower than of the following 20 years, 2000 till now. And you have to remember that 80 to 2000, there was no Netflix, there was no streaming, there none of the online video games. So effectively, cinema had monopoly over, over that kind of entertainment. And yet they sold fewer tickets, not box office, tickets. They sold fewer tickets than in the time between 2000 and 2020. One of the obvious answers is cinema's got a lot better. The 1980s was a terrible time. I don't know if you remember, but it was a really bad time. Either you had access to some of the premium cinemas otherwise it would be like you said it would sit sideways looking at a screen a kind of right angle the sound would be mangled up and i mean gary works a skywalker sound and he will tell you much better than i can that thx when thx came out the sound system one of the things they did was I can't remember what it was called a theater alignment program it was called tap yeah, tap tap yep a tap so whenever there was a film that came out from lucasfilm people would go to the cinema to check that it was projected and reproduced sound-wise in the right manner because it was understood that there was a problem. Now the situation has improved dramatically and to be honest to exhibitors, they've spent a lot of money on that. The paradox is that the one thing that they have not really done lately and they used to do very well was servicing customers in a human fashion. Ushers, you know, it used to be an absolutely integral part of the film-going experience. You would talk to them, they would talk to you, they would tell you, hey, if you like this movie, wait until this other movie comes out. And these days, they're, they're just taking your ticket at best if it's not an automa automated thing. And I think there's a lot of money lost there and a lot of relationships lost there. That's really interesting. It is so true. And I know that at the Arclight in the Cinerama Dome here in Los Angeles, and in those theaters, and unfortunately, uh, I don't think the Cinerama Dome is reopened. It's my favorite theater in the world. But they would have people come up and speak to the audience before and kind of set up the movie. And it made it feel like a really special experience. And I know others do that. Certain There are exhibitors, but it's not the norm. That's the exception. And a lot of it is having the, the people power to do it. And I know that at a local cinema here, you walk in, you're basically on the honor system. There's no one even taking now that may change when they get more people working again but you're just you go in sit down and it's kind of like do it yourself in some ways i don't mind that i just want to go and watch the movie but i do love the idea gianluca that you just brought up of bringing back the usher and a lot of people start in the business half the people i know from my generation who are on the theater side started as ushers in theaters and i can tell you one very good reason if anybody's listening here to me talking about this one very interesting reason why that's important is people of my age, you know, over a certain hill, let's say, own something like 50% of the wealth in the US. So all the film goers are the ones with the money and the time. 
and the industry needs to service them better. They need to make more movies for that particular demographic, but they also need to service them better. And one of the things that they can do is make them feel welcome and not make them feel like it's a space just for 20-year-olds. So ushers will play a very important role in that respect, and I suspect you would see an uptick in ticket sales. Well, you know, you teed this up perfectly because, Gianluca, just last week, a press release came from the AARP, <laughs> and Comscore worked with them. And I remember when I got my first AARP thing in the mail when I turned 40, I was like, oh, my God, but it, what a great organization. And along with the Comscore and our Screen Engine post-track data, we found that Older audiences have returned to movie theaters in great numbers in 2022, even outpacing pre-pandemic. For people 45 and older, that audience has grown 5% from attendance levels in 2019. And Top Gun Maverick and Elvis and Downton Abbey, Ticket to Paradise, The Lost City and other films were a big part of that. So you perfectly set that up because it is very important that that audience, 45 and older, is honored and that movies are greenlit moving forward that will appeal to that audience. I think that's an easier sell now. That's funny. That's not the story we tell ourselves. It's interesting you guys say that because the story that Hollywood, anyway, tells itself is that only young people go to movies. That's right. It's reflected in the kind of movies being made and how they're marketed and released. So that's really interesting information. Yeah, if you build it, they will come. And it depends on the audience. My late mother, if I had told her we're going to go see some R-rated horror movie, it'd be like, what? <laughs> Yeah. That's not happening. But uh, Or a superhero movie, although a lot of superhero movies now are many types of movies all in one, and they can be great cinema, not to denigrate any genre. But you're right. I think it is very heartening, and I think it makes us feel great that more mature, as I like to call us, or me, audience, love to go to the movies. It's definitely baked into our DNA. And younger people are going as well. If you make a variety of films, we may have talked about this before, you have to market them properly, too. Yeah. You got to get the messaging out there so people, with all the competition on the small screen, it does behoove the studios and the marketing teams and distribution to really get the word out in a proper way that gets people wanting to come out to the movie theater. You see, in many ways, Paul, I think the point that Gary just made, that a lot of people in the film industry tend to believe that only young people go to the cinema, is a perfect explanation as to why it was important for us to write this book. Because the key lesson that has come out of writing this book is that the way we narrate crisis is what shapes their meaning. In other words, it's the story that we tell about the crisis that impacts on the film industry. So if the story that we tell about our crisis about ticket sales is, oh, we're doomed because older audiences don't come anymore to the cinema, we only need to cater for young audiences, then you will make decisions based on that story. But that story may very well be inaccurate, if not altogether false. And so if your decisions are based on that, then you are doomed by your own decisions, not by what's actually happening. And it's an erroneous assumption that I think, well, let's put it this way. When studios were making more films aimed at that demographic that they thought, let's say the 18 to 24-year-olds who were the only people going to the movies, then you're only going to make movies for them. And then, of course, if you do that, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You keep making movies for kids. Why would I go see one of those movies? And that could actually hurt theaters in the long run. So I'm glad because more mature moviegoers say, I'll just stay home. I can find what I want. I can curate for myself. But now I think this AARP study with the Comscore data shows that it is very smart business to not give up on that. More mature audiences haven't given up on the movie theaters. 
So movie theaters or studios, I should say, because they're creating the content, should never give up on that more mature audience. Especially now, the tickets cost so much more money than it used to. And that demographic is the demographic with the money, as we were saying before. So, you know, it, it seems counterintuitive to go the other direction, to go towards young people who don't have money. I would direct myself towards those that have money. Well, they could be like me when I was a kid. I went to my dad. Hey, dad, can I have a few bucks to go to the movies? Yeah. No, not to be flippant, but if Mercedes or BMW comes up with a nice new model that costs however much, they're probably going to direct their marketing campaign towards the people who have the money and they want to buy it. They're not going to market it to college students because they know that they can't buy the damn thing. So it seems like sometimes the film industry works in a mysterious way, magical as it is. And this to me seems like just logic, not even any particular amount of intelligence, just logic behavior but there you go one of the lessons i got through going through the crises and the stories we tell in the book is that for a while hollywood and we're using hollywood in the generic sense gets it wrong does the wrong thing just reacts in the wrong way and then something amazing comes out and it all gets better and gets resolved in, in ways you never saw coming you know when television came out hollywood didn't want anything to do with it we don't want to show anything on television we don't want any of our actors on television we pretend it doesn't exist and it turns out television is kind of a savior for, in terms both of production, because Hollywood was you know, running low on having productions to do and having an outlet for older movies. It was a savior for Hollywood. That's a great point. But at first it's like, ah, you know, Jack Warner in their book, we had a little memo to the studio saying, we don't even want to show televisions in our Warner Brothers movies. Pretend it doesn't exist, right? So all the crises have that moment of doing all the wrong things and thinking the wrong things. And then somehow reality kind of wrenches it to a good place. Who's responsible for that? Who's the hero? Who knows? But and I think now things are going to wrench in, in terms of demographics and the cinema experience, all that stuff. I have hope that it'll just all kind of work out in the wash and head in the right direction because it has every other time. I think it will. That may be a great point. I mean, we could go forever here. I could just do this with you guys every week, but I think you're right. As we're winding down, I think, you know, I've taken so much of your time. But what I think is interesting about that, Gary, you're absolutely right. Because when the pandemic first hit, nobody knew what was going to happen. But you can't react immediately. I mean, they did. They had to shut down theaters, but that was obvious. But in, in terms of where the business was going, what was happening, what would be the outcome? People were trying to already toll the death knell for movie theaters because I think they were either waiting for it or hoping for it or wanted to be proven right because they had said it was going to die anyway. And it just didn't happen, but it took a while. I mean, even those of us who, who never gave up on the movie theater there were a couple of moments where I'm like, geez, if this thing doesn't, you know, and, and it was so tragic, obviously, not to diminish what, you know, the pandemic meant on a personal level and a human level. But what it did was it was a disruptor. But then I think coming out of this, we're learning so much more about the industry, about movies, going to the movies, I think is more important than ever. If this was a trial by fire, I mean, try and tell me that the movie theater can't survive everything. People always said, well, we survived television you know, in the 50s and the home video revolution in the 90s and the, the home theater revolution in the 2000s, now the streaming revolution. But okay, all those we were able to overcome and you can see how the industry did. But a pandemic like this that literally shut down theaters completely, and there were other businesses that that happened to, but for the theater business, I mean, that was devastating. And for those who were waiting for streaming to take over, like that was the moment. And, you know, Disney Plus had started in November of 2019 they were perfectly timed or imperfect, you know, as the situation was mm -hmm. to take those audiences who now went home 
and give them content. But drive-ins, that's a whole different sound sonic situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not not a good one. Not a good one. I remember those boxes on the metal can on the not great sound. The metal, yeah, the metal box, yeah. But the fact that people we showed in our Comscore data that suddenly ninety percent of the box office, ninety five percent was drive-ins, and the people were going to drive-ins. They wanted a way to get out of the house in that communal experience, and that to me was the most at the time and now the most important signal that the movie theater was here to stay when people who were cooped up at home, stayed in the cocoon of their car and went to a drive-in. And again, to repeat what we said when we spoke last week, when you compare this pandemic and the behavior post-pandemic to the behavior post-Spanish flu pandemic, they are remarkably similar in so many ways because ultimately human beings don't change in the space of a couple of years. And don't forget, the Spanish flu came immediately after World War I, so already they had a catastrophic event, and here comes another catastrophic event on top of that. And yet, as soon as things reopen, you know, the Roaring Twenties happen. That's what happens. Just like the Renaissance happened after the bubonic plague. And so human beings are made to socialize. They're made to go out and enjoy themselves. And cinema, luckily, for all of us who love it, has been of paramount importance to that particular equation over the past 120 years, and long may continue. Well, well said. So I want to just reiterate, uh, you're listening to Comscore's Many Screens Big Picture podcast, and I'm so honored to have two legends on the program, Gary Rydstrom and Gianluca Sergi. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly, Sergi. No, it's Jackson. Okay, Jackson. Okay, that's perfect. <laughs> Gianluca Jackson. I'd see that movie. I'd see that movie. I would too. No, it's it's really interesting to talk to you because I think the parallels between the music industry and really where sound and Gary, with your expertise, we've talked about on the podcast that we love jazz, vinyl albums, the communal and interactive and tactile experience that only playing a record on a turntable can bring. And also going to the movie theater. I think, Gary, you said it's a corollary. The way you listen to music and you would have people sit around and you put on an album, listen to Sgt. Pepper the whole way through or Dark Side of the Moon or whatever album of your choice or Kind of Blue, Miles Davis. So I think no matter what, what binds us together and what binds the three of us together is our love of movies, of the communal experience. I think we're analog, very analog people, even though much of the technology is digital. It's always trying to, I think, replicate the real world, right? The analog, the goal is to replicate things as best as possible for the best experience. Whether you go lo-fi or hi-fi, whatever, the manipulation of that, I think is really interesting. And, And to have Gary, you're an Oscar winner. To me, you're sound. I mean, that's everything. And without you and without those who do what you do, we wouldn't have movies today. And I think it's it's so important that now, given the sound systems in theaters, that they're able to realize your, your sonic vision on the big screen. And Gianluca, your knowledge of the history of cinema and how it all ties together to what's happening today and going through the blueprint of the past to figure out the map of the future is really cool. And I'm just so honored to have both of you on the Many Screens Big Picture podcast. And your book is The Endless End of Cinema. Who is the publisher on that? Bloomsbury Publishing. Bloomsbury Publishing. So check it out, The Endless End of Cinema, wherever records and tapes are sold. <laughs> Let's hope, yeah. I think it's a book that film historians, movie lovers, history buffs, sound fanatics such as myself. Your book is for a very 
broad-based audience, I think. Just like the best movies often have that universality or the universal appeal. So I appreciate you writing this book. I think everyone, it's required reading for all my listeners. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying. Thank you very much. And I'm going to give you both the last word. If you have any final thoughts, Gianluca, any final thoughts? Actually, one final thought was that originally when we started talking about this, we realized that it's very rare for an academic and a filmmaker to write a book together, which is mm -hmm. not about the filmmaker. It was a real adventure you know, kind of a body movie, I think uh, Gary once uh, said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm the, the, the sillier one of the two, but yeah. Oh, well, I, I don't know about that. But anyway, it was been a, a really great learning curve, I think, for both of us to learn more about each other, each other's worlds. And I would recommend that this kind of relationship continues and it's replicated by other people because it's always good to get a different perspective on something that we both, as you said, we're all united by the same love for movies. So it doesn't matter which perspective we come from. It's always good to exchange ideas and viewpoints. And it's been a wonderful experience for me. That's fantastic. And Gary, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the same idea. I, mean, I think our two worlds, the academic and the production world of film, often don't communicate with each other. And we, earlier, we were talking about the demographics. You guys are talking about you know, older audiences are coming back to movies. And I'd never heard that. I think that we just need to, for the sake of something we both love, we have to talk to each other. And I, you know, for me, writing the book was fun because even though, say, I, I've been in sound forever, I've never read a lot of books or articles about the history of sound and the coming of sound. It was a, like, wow, there's a lot of things I didn't know, including the, you know, the kind of the artistic questions that people have when they started playing with that new tool. I didn't know. And it, you know, it informs my work to learn the history of that kind of stuff. So one aspect of this book was that collaboration between these two sometimes separate worlds can be valuable all across the board. Well, I think it's perfectly realized in the endless end of cinema, your new book. Gianluca, Gary, thank you so much for joining me. And again, check out this book. I think anyone who loves movies, loves sound, loves going to the cinema or even streaming, whatever it is, will get a lot out of this book. So thank you both <laughs> for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>